high-level overview, and then, Lord willing, next week, um, if I can get the computer to function correctly, to display some things on the screen, uh, we're going to be looking at the tabernacle over the next couple of weeks. And um, I love the picture of the tabernacle. There's so much symbolism in there that is precious to us as Christians and uh, the things that we see. One of the interesting things to me is that in the book of Hebrews, Christ speaks of the fact <coughs> excuse me, that the tabernacle and later the temple uh, are shadows of things that are in the heavens that are not built by hands, by man's hand. And so we have a, an earthly picture, if you will, of something that uh, is apparently in heaven. And uh, from the book of Hebrews we find that. And we'll look a little bit more into that next week. Uh, but uh, whenever we hear something that God gives us here on earth to help us understand and see uh, some of the things and, and what's going on in the heavens, uh, I think it's a wonderful thing for us to spend time to look at it and to see it. Uh, as we get to chapter number 25, <clears throat> Moses is now up on top of Mount Sinai. And uh, remember that God had told him to bring people close by, but not to come to the mountain. And they were to see the fire on the mountain, which they did. Uh, and uh, the Bible says in verse number 15 of chapter 24, Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And we spoke last week a little bit about the idea of waiting on God. Sometimes God calls us or has us come to a certain point in our life, and then it seems like, okay, now where do you want me to go, Lord? And He doesn't tell us right away. And a good lesson to learn here. Moses sits there for six days and waits on God to show up. And even though God's presence was there, the cloud and all of that, as far as him communing with Moses and talking with Moses, he did not do so for until the seventh day. <clears throat> Verse number 17 of 24, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. I think that's a big thing uh, in this uh, chapter, that God is making sure that even though His His uh, relationship and His his intent is to use Moses as the go-between, the uh, can we can we say it this way that he is he's the intercessor if you will or the um, the the one who uh, is the advocate for the nation of Israel between them and Israel and in that way he pictures a type of Christ. Uh, there's a symbolism I believe there that's taught, and uh, so God uses Moses to do this, but he did want the nation of Israel to realize, hey, this isn't just Moses going up here on the mountain and, and making this stuff up. He wanted the, the nation of Israel to see his, his power, his might, his glory. And so he had them draw near to the mountain, but he didn't want them to be on the mountain. And so the Bible says in verse 17 that the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire uh, on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And by the way, uh, it'd be really good if we could get a renewed view of who God is. If His glory would be something that we would focus on. Uh, I am amazed at how little, oftentimes, we minimize God into a little manageable thought. Uh, we bring Him down oftentimes to our level. We make, we make reasonable, uh, uh, logical steps in our thinking about the way He is and what He does and His motives. 
And if the truth of the matter is the only way we do that is by limiting him to the same types of motives and reasoning we would have. But the Bible says that his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. And for the nation of Israel to look up on that mountain and see the glory of the Lord as a devouring fire and to be able to understand this glory of the Lord, I think it would do us well sometimes to have our eyes opened again. Uh, for God to be able to touch our hearts and our minds, be able to understand these things. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount, and Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. And so here's where the Lord is going to now give Moses some things. And uh, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering." And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram's skins dyed red, and badger's skins and, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for, the, uh, for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod of the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary... And I love this phrase, that I may dwell among them. God started this entire world with the, with the, the, the desire, the, the inclination to fellowship with man. The Bible says that He would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Could you imagine that? What a, what a thought. What a thought. And that was God's desire, and that's in, in the perfectness of His creation. That's what he, he longed for, was to have fellowship with man. But man, He, he wanted them to have free will, and, and we certainly understand that. Hold your place here for a minute. I want you to notice something in Genesis chapter 3, because I want us to see how, how God does some things here in the, in the building of the tabernacle that are really... Uh, you, don't, you don't catch it the first time through, I don't think. You don't see it the first time through. And, and then as you think and you study about it, you're like, wow, that is so incredible to see that. But in Genesis chapter number 3, the Bible says, and, uh, um, <coughs> excuse me, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but the fruit... Of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. By the way, let me just stop for a moment. God gives us free will, and we see that in this portion of the passage. God gave him the tree of life, and he gave him the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, This one you can eat of, and this one you cannot. He gives them the choice. He doesn't force them. And by the way, he gives every man a choice. And every man must choose whether they're going to accept God or whether they're going to deny God or reject Him. And we find in verse number 4 that the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And uh, while verse number 5, I believe, was accurate, I think what the serpent was saying there in verse number 5 was certainly true, that if they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would know between good and evil. Uh, but notice that he denies 
what God had previously said in verse 4, doesn't he? He says, the servant said, you shall not surely die. But God had said that they would surely die, didn't he? And can I tell you this, that Satan does not just come and tell us to reject God's word across the board. Oftentimes, what Satan will do is he will take large portions even maybe of Scripture and even affirm those, but he'll bring in some deniability in some area and cause us to begin questioning God's word in this area. And uh, he's, he's smart enough and he's slick enough to know that with people who believe the Bible, he can't just come outright and say, well, the Bible's not true. And he'll give you 80 or 90 or, or 95, he might even give you 99% of truth and say, yes, I'll agree with that, but he'll, he'll plant that one seed of doubt. And that one seed of doubt, if it's left untended, will continue to grow in the heart of a person and cause them to get to a place where they, they begin to question and deny God's Word. Satan has never changed that. By the way, that's why it's important that we understand in, in our church that we hold in our hands the preserved, pure Word of God without error. Because if there's even one percent, if there's even a tenth of one percent, if there's even a hundredth of one percent of doubt in this book, then we begin to question all of the rest of it. Satan does this. I believe one of the great deceits of Satan over the last hundred years, 150 years, has been to take God's Word and change it. Not, not a lot, but a little bit here and there. Just to question a few things. Just to change a few issues of doctrine and cause us to begin thinking, was well, that really true or is that not true? And folks, it's very, very important that we are established in sound doctrine. We understand these things and that the sound doctrine come from a pure Word of God. We get to verse number five, or verse number six, and the woman saw that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And I believe at that moment, man died. He said, "Oh, they were still alive, brother Greg. Yes, but there was something inside of them that used to be alive that was all of a sudden now is dead." I can't prove this. I'm going to give you a little bit of Gregology for a moment, okay? But I believe that when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, that they were clothed with the glory of God. And when they sinned, that that glory departed, that fellowship left. And all of a sudden, they began to realize, hey, we're naked. I can't prove that from Scripture. When we get to heaven, we'll know the truth of it. But I do know that somewhere between verse number 6 and verse number 7, something in them died. And the day they ate thereof, God was true, wasn't He? By the way, our Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. God is always going to be true. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. One of the saddest statements, I believe, in Genesis. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Oh, what a travesty. What a travesty. Man chose, they sinned. They began to no longer desire to be in the presence of the Lord, but they desired to hide themselves from His presence. By the way, when you and I get into this mindset that our sin is not that big of a deal, 
we begin to hide ourselves from the presence of the Lord. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? We understand God knew where Adam was. He needed Adam to realize where he was. You can take time to read what Adam's excuses were, and basically he blamed God. Even though he, on the surface, said he blamed the woman, he said, the woman thou gavest me. The woman blamed the serpent, and even though she didn't say it, she was implying the serpent that you created. God gives the judgment of their sin in verse number 15. Verse number 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of, that, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. <coughs> Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and, the sorrow, and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. <coughs> Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy, of thy face shalt thou eat uh, bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, wast thou taken, and for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Adam also unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, now notice this, Behold, man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out man and he placed, notice this, he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims with a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I want you to understand this picture for a moment. God creates man, puts him in a perfect garden. His desire was to have fellowship with man willfully. When man sinned, that fellowship was torn apart. It was broken. And God takes man and He sends him out of His presence, out of, out of that place of the Garden of Eden that He so longed to walk and talk with Him and spend time communing with Him. And He sends him out, and the Bible says that He takes some cherubs, that's more than one, He puts them on the east side of the Garden of Eden. And they have a flaming sword. And man is on the outside. We get to the picture of the tabernacle, and I'm just going to give you this, and we're going to probably end there today, and then next week we're going to get into this a lot further. The tabernacle consisted of an outer court, which was 
a rather large area, had curtains all the way around it. And that's where the people could come in. And when they came in through those curtains, the very first thing that they came to was the altar. They could not approach God any further until they had gone through the altar. The sacrifice had to be made. On the other side of the altar, between the altar and the, the place of, uh, the, the Bible talks about the holies inside of the tabernacle, the place of residence of God. In between there was a laver where the priest would wash themselves, their hands, their feet, for purifying themselves to be able to be worthy of taking the blood of the sacrifice into the holy place. So inside this outer court, there's a building there. It's about 45 feet long, about 15 feet wide, about 15 feet tall. And in the first 30 feet of it is called, the, the entire part of it is called the holy place. It's the place where God resides. And the first 30 feet of it is called the holy place. And inside that first 30 feet, there are three pieces of furniture. There's the table of showbread on the right. And then there's the, the seven candlestick on the, the menorah on the left. And then just uh, in the middle there towards the uh, curtain or the, the uh, place that was considered the holiest of holies, there was uh, the altar of incense. On the curtain, on the curtain, going into the Holy of Holies were embroidered two cherubs, one on each side. And the high priest, one time a year, would go into the Holy of Holies. <laughs> and there sitting in front of him is one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And yet it has two parts. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, they would place, inside the box part of it, they placed uh, a, a jar of manna, one day's supply of manna. They placed the Aaron's, bud, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And they placed the stone tablets that had the law written on it. And then there was a lid. And on top of this lid, the Bible is very descriptive, there were also two cherubs that had their wings folded and crossed over the top of it. And on the top of this Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat. And the Shekinah glory of God rested there. And when the children of Israel would make camp, they would set up the tabernacle first. And they would, they would get everything just so and situated. And once it was situated, the pillar of fire that God would be to them in the night and the pillar of cloud by day came and it would fill the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat right there at the mercy seat. And His presence was there in the midst of the people. It's interesting that in order for man to restore fellowship with God, there's got to be a way for them to come past those cherubs there's the flaming light of God's Shekinah glory there. There's got to be an appeasement for the wrath of God over the sin. And once that is taken care of, the fellowship with God is restored all over again. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We're going to study a little bit more about that next week. But boy, I'll tell you, I'm getting excited getting ready to get into the tabernacle. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. That God gives to us. And it, and, it, and it means something. It's just not a bunch of details that God gives just to make things complicated. All of this is something that is just a blessing to us. 
and a help to us. And I, I, I'm excited about getting into it, and uh, I hope it'll be an encouragement and a help to you. And uh, so let's go ahead and end there. We got a few minutes till our eleven o'clock hour, so let's go ahead and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. As we take time over the next few weeks to cover these next six chapters of Exodus, dealing with the tabernacle and how the priests were to serve, how the people were to come, Lord, so specifically given, may we continuously understand as we read the pages of these next few chapters that all of this foreshadows what is set up in heaven, what is there that has been there from the foundation of the world from what we understand and so father i pray that you would help us to glean from it what you would have us to may our hearts be stirred may we be overjoyed may our faith be strengthened by it and lord what a joy it is to be able to study your perfect plan of redemption and how you've given us wonderful things in this life and certainly some things in this precious precious book that show us this wonderful plan of redemption that you've given to us And so may we rejoice in it, may we study it, and thrill our hearts in it over the next several weeks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.